So I once had a graduate student um, who reported to me that in an undergrad class that he'd taken at another university, uh, some students were getting very exasperated with the course being taught by a philosopher. So they asked somebody who was bold enough to ask, why are you, why are you teaching us this stuff? And his, mm. the reported answer was, because I get paid for it. Oh. I find that just so painful. Mm. So for me, it was never philosophy. It was never because I get paid for it, but because I love it. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One thing I find frustrating is the way that faith and reason are so often perceived as incompatible with one another. In fact, when the subject of philosophy comes up, uh, it is often considered incompatible with Christianity. But I would argue that philosophy is essential to to our understanding of the Christian faith. The vocabulary we use, the concepts we use, The very doctrines we believe in are embedded in the tools of philosophy. In fact, philosophy is not only important for our understanding of the Christian faith, it's also crucial for our defense of the Christian faith. When we interact with those who are not Christians, sometimes reason is pitted against Christianity as if the two are antithetical to one another. The Christian is charged with the responsibility then of showing that Christianity and reason are not antithetical to one another, but go hand in hand. In fact, they're very compatible. One individual, one scholar who has pushed back against that assumption that Christianity and reason are antithetical to one another is Nicholas Wolterstorff. I am really delighted to have Nick on the Credo podcast today. There's so much I could say about him. You may have read many of his works in philosophy, books like Faith and Rationality, Reason Within the Bounds of Religion. But what I love about Nick is the way he explores other fields of interest, other topics. He's written on liturgy, justice, several books on art. He's written on divine discourse, even religion in the university. And one, of, one subject that is very personal to him is his book Lament for a Son, where he leads Christians through uh, the process of grieving in a time of loss. One book by Nick that has caught my eye recently is his memoir called In This World of Wonders, Memoir of a Life in Learning. Today we have the privilege, privilege of talking to Nick about this memoir. Before we get started, one thing I found so intriguing was not just Nick's own journey in the world of philosophy, but his introduction to the Dutch Reform tradition. Nick grew up in a little village where he attended a Dutch Reform church. Now, oftentimes, the Dutch Reform tradition gets caricatured as if it's a a tradition that's suffocating. Uh, But Nick had the opposite experience, in part due to the church he was part of, but also his own parents. They taught him to live a life of joy. 
They, they taught him to love creation, to even reverence the created order that God has given us. They taught him to be grateful and to be full of thanksgiving and gratitude. They also taught him to be pious. But they not only taught him to love the Lord with his heart, but also with his mind. And because of that, Nick was encouraged to use his mind in extraordinary ways. And so while the tradition that some find suffocating, perhaps, as the caricature goes, with its emphasis on doctrines like predestination or election, well, this same tradition Nick found quite liberating. So, Nick, the first question I want to ask you is just that. Why is it that you found uh, your experience in the Dutch Reformed Church so enjoyable and so liberating? How to be grateful, being grateful to God and living joyfully and um, piously in one's everyday life and um, uh, how you farmed and, um, in my father's case, how he treated wood, with, treated it with reverence. That's the best word I've got. He would rub his hand across it. He was a woodworker by, by his very nature. Rub his hand across it and say, look, Nick, look, Nick, how beautiful this is going to be. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was life-affirming, uh, not negating. It was not all about getting to heaven. It was about getting to heaven, but it was not all about that. Maybe not mostly about that, mm-hmm. but about how to live thankfully, joyfully in, in our world. Um, So the best word I can think of is it was life-affirming. And part of the life-affirming was that there was no anti-intellectualism in it. Hmm. Uh, To the contrary, my aunts and uncles, my father, grew up in the Depression. And they had, my father had one year of college, had to drop out. But most of my aunts and uncles had not gone beyond, let's say, sixth grade or something like that. But the result in them was not that they despised the life of the intellect and so forth, but that they had a a longing for what they had been deprived of. So they all insisted that their own children go to college. Uh, We had these big intellectual discussions in my living room when I was growing up. So it was affirming of the goodness of the earth, but also affirming of the life of the mind. When you uh, became a philosopher and um, came came back to uh, those roots, and, and uh, whether it's some of your relatives or your immediate family, uh, were they uh, warm and welcoming to to you choosing a, a philosophical career? I never got any sense whatsoever that my father or anybody else was worried about my choosing to become a philosopher. Not a not a word of it was breathed. Uh, to the contrary. So when I, I was a young kid, I worked on the farm of my uncle Chuck. And uh, when I was in college, I'd go back to visit him and my aunt Calvin, Uncle Chuck, and uh, I can see it vividly. Yet. Um, uncle Chuck and I standing together, <laughs> leaning on a fence, watching his cows in the barnyard. And his saying to me, Nick, you're in philosophy, right? What is philosophy? So I did my best to understand it in a layperson sort of way and never forget his response. Wrapped his arm around me and said, that's really interesting. I'm glad I asked. When you uh, talk about, I love that story too. Uh, it, it just 
<laughs> that's so uh, different, I think, than than the experiences of, of many others uh, who who perhaps come back and uh, maybe there's some resistance. Um, it, it does speak volumes, though, about uh, about how how uh, the tradition this this reformed Southwest Minnesota uh, territory and the, this tradition and home that you are raised in, uh, how affirming it was. Uh, One thing I noticed was uh, you mentioned how uh, there was repetition. And, and of course, anyone who knows uh, the Christian Reformed Church or or the Dutch Reformed background will be familiar with um, liturgy. Uh, But you don't speak of it as something dry or or boring or uh, something that is actually uh, going to be uh, stifling of spirituality. You speak of repetition as something that's welcome. Uh, how, how did those early years, as you experienced liturgy, how, how did those influence you? I mean, we all know that uh, later on in life, you would you would actually write uh, books on on liturgy and worship. Yeah. Uh, how did those early years influence you? Hmm, nice question. Um, so as you hinted. Uh, there was repetition. Um, the service always began this, the same way. You could predict exactly what the sequence was. There would be the reading of uh, Ten Commandments, and there would be a prayer of confession. I mean, you, the sequence was always the same, and some of the content was the same. Uh, the opening, the closing. Uh, so there was not the present-day idea that only the brand-new is meaningful, it was rather that this liturgy, its words, its phrases, its sequence sank into you without without you really knowing it. Um, so I'm sure that that's how my own views about liturgy, more I should say, is more intuitive, my intuitions about liturgy were formed, um, that liturgy is a, you could put it like this, liturgy is not just expressive, I think a lot of people move around from church to church to find some place where the liturgy just expresses how they feel and think. Uh, For me, the liturgy was formative, I mean, it was also expressive, but it was a formative thing, so I've always thought of liturgy as a way in which Christians get formed. Not, not just for expression, but to get formed. Uh, I'm sure I picked that up from that little church in my little village of Bigelow when I was a young kid. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can skip ahead to uh, your, your upbringing there to some of your, your early years uh, in college. Uh, you uh, yeah. went to Calvin college and uh, I think it was your sophomore year you say you you took uh, one of your first philosophy courses and you describe it as love on first contact uh, 30 minutes in uh, you you said to yourself I don't know whether I'm going to be any good at this uh, but if I am this is it and uh, you yeah. you describe this I love how you describe this because you, you don't describe it as 
it, so often we, we tend to think this way, students tend to think this way, the students I teach tend to think this way, uh, of choosing your career or choosing you know, that, that which you, you, you love and, and want to spend your time on. But you talk in the reverse. You say, I, I didn't choose philosophy, philosophy chose me. And then you go on to talk about uh, how uh, you, you were introduced to uh, some of the great thinkers, uh, an Augustine or a, a, a Thomas Aquinas. Uh, what what was this like, and, and why is it that you fell in love with philosophy so quickly? So I don't know. Uh, I mean, you described the episode, uh, required philosophy course, sophomore year, first semester, sophomore year. I didn't know what philosophy was. We're 30 minutes into it, and I'm gripped. I wish I remembered what the prof said in those first 30 minutes, <laughs> but I have no memory of it. I just thought, wow, this is, this is another world. This is, this is, this is it. Um, so the best way I can put it, yes, is that philosophy chose me. I didn't choose it. Or something might have distracted me, I suppose, and so forth. So um, beyond that initial um, gripping, so what I've found fascinating about philosophy is that it is that it raises the deep questions in art. Um, so art critics talk about representation and expression and so forth. And so the philosopher of art stands back and asks, um, "What is representation? What is expression? How do we tell a work of art from other things?" Um, in ethics, we don't just, uh, philosophical ethics, don't just argue whether this is good or bad or that is right or wrong, but what, what, what is it for something to be obligatory, to be right, and what is justice? And I've just found those, what shall I say, those background questions, those underlying questions, to be endlessly fascinating. Mm. Some people get annoyed with them, maybe a lot of people, because... Philosophers eliminate some answers and some ways of asking questions over the years, but philosophy remains a field of um, unanswered questions. Um, so I sense of that my feeling about philosophy is here in other places too, but here above all, we we touch on the mystery of things, mm. on the deep, on the deep mystery of God's creation. That word. Well, Unanswered, gripping questions. That word mystery is, uh, I, I think, telling, uh, and and you've used the word gripping uh, several times. At, at one point, you talk about how you love, uh, especially in those early days, as you look back, you, you fell in love with just the the search for understanding and and, and what yeah. results from it, even understanding itself being the result and the process of achieving that understanding, um, and uh, not not just uh, not just a love of understanding and achieving, but also the the practice of philosophy. Uh, you describe it as as love in action, uh, yeah. and. Uh, it, is something that yes, there's struggle and frustration, but that actually is is part of the process, um, and uh, is it, something that energizes you. I, I think one thing 
I was so encouraged by was uh, as you reflected on those those early days uh, as you fall in love with philosophy. It wasn't just any type of philosophy, though. Uh, it's a philosophy in the heritage of an Augustine or an Anselm of faith-seeking understanding. Yep. And those listeners of ours who have read, say, uh, any number of your books, but books like uh, Reason Within the Bounds of Religion, um, yep. uh, which is which is a very much a, a play on words, reversing that order, uh, in contrast to some Enlightenment thinkers. Uh, this is a very specific type of philosophy, one that uh, doesn't seek to put faith aside or or dismiss faith as uh, irrelevant, but actually seeks to reason within. Uh, within the context and even the authority of faith itself, can you can you elaborate on that? What what does that mean exactly? Um, so, so let me first go back to your previous point very briefly. Um, so I once had a graduate student um, who reported to me that in an undergrad class that he'd taken at another university, uh, some students were getting very exasperated with the course being taught by a philosopher. So they asked somebody who was bold enough to ask, why are you, why are you teaching us this stuff? And his, mm-hmm. the reported answer was, because I get paid for it. Oh. I find that just, oh, painful. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was never philosophy. It was never because I get paid for it, but because I love it. Um, I'm baffled by something that's mysterious, and then um, the process of trying to understand it and... Um, Quite often, <laughs> the satisfaction of thinking I have understood it. But now to your question. So when I was a student at Calvin, we were presented with a vision. It was the Augustinian Anselmian vision, faith-seeking understanding. Our profs did not assemble evidences for the truth of Christianity. And they never suggested that faith is one thing and intellectual inquiry is another thing. But always the vision put in front of us was think and read, think about philosophical issues, read philosophical texts uh, from the standpoint of faith. Uh, don't set your faith off to the side, but uh, look at uh, the philosophical reality, the philosophical text through the lens of faith. And um, the idea behind that was that Philosophy in general is the working out of worldviews. It's not just drinking in facts, but it's um, people have deep views about reality and uh, human beings and God and the good and so forth. And philosophy is essentially working out those views. And um, the vision we got was that Christians stand in that, should play a part in that same in that same uh, activity of working out our views of life and God and reality. Doing so in interaction with the other people, um, learning from them, speaking to them, and so forth. So that's the vision I caught that we were given at Calvin, and it stood me in mighty good stead in grad school and beyond. Uh, Mm. Because when I got to Harvard as a grad student, there was a very secular philosophy, which was ruling the roost, so-called logical positivism. And one part of what the positivists were saying was that 
talk about God. Religious, religious and theological speech is meaningless, lacks meaning. Rather than that getting me terrified and frightened and disturbing my faith, it soon became clear to me that <laughs> they were not just drinking in the facts about meaning, but behind it was the idolization, I would say, of natural science as the only true way forward. And religion, metaphysics, and so forth were dead ends. So once I saw that that was the worldview behind it, um, I was annoyed, bemused, but not frightened. And would you say, you know, since you mentioned your days at Harvard, uh, you, you describe it as, uh, you know, a Calvin, you're being immersed in philosophical texts uh, by some of the thinkers that we've mentioned. Harvard, you actually start doing philosophy, and yet um, you don't go the route of positivism, um, in, in, like you just mentioned, uh, though would you say that at the time that was sort of the buzz and uh, maybe a majority of thinkers and students were very intrigued and sometimes adopted that point of view? So, um, yes, the positivism was all the rage. Um, and as you say, as I write, um, uh, I got a very good training in philosophy at uh, Calvin, but when I got to Harvard, I recognized that what I had learned to do was read philosophical texts. And we would write papers about at Calvin about, about Kant, about Descartes, about, about whoever we were studying. At Harvard, all the talk was about doing philosophy, uh, and many of the students, grad students were relatively ignorant of the history of philosophy, it turned out. Hmm. So this business of doing philosophy was, well, in a way, I'd done some of it, but uh, that, that was the priority. And what it meant is that you had to, if you're going to do philosophy, you got to pay attention to what's being said at the time. You can't just pay attention to what was said a thousand years ago or 500 years ago. So I had to get up to speed rapidly about uh, present-day philosophy. I think I had not... I don't remember hearing about logical positivism at Calvin, but now I had to cope with it. As I say, um, I soon saw that uh, it was a special worldview which held no attraction for me. I didn't for a minute think that the only way forward was natural science. And I also had a mentor, D.C. Williams, at Harvard, a teacher, whose attitude was, oh, this too shall pass, <laughs> as, as it did uh, quite soon. Now, now, when you talk about uh, Harvard, uh, of course, you don't stay at Harvard. Uh, ultimately, you, you end up uh, uh, going to the Netherlands and... Um, even even early on, uh, this would uh, be something you would return to later in life, uh, but you end up going to, uh, I think it's around 1957, if I'm right, you end up going to right. uh, to Amsterdam uh, with, with your wife, Claire, and yep. uh, you... Uh, you Little baby, Amy, yeah. Yes, I think she was really young, wasn't she? <laughs> yeah, she was... Uh... Two months. Two months. Wow. And it was by boat back then, right? Yeah. Uh, amazing. Uh, I don't know that our listeners even uh, <laughs> even uh, can can understand what that experience was like. Uh, you know, it, it, you go to, for, to the um, 
the free university there. And um, this is such a, a fascinating p- point in your life because, uh, well, well, two things I'll mention and just give you the chance to elaborate on them. On the one hand, uh, as, as a systematic theologian, uh, I was so appreciative that uh, you're, you're noticing that uh, many are dismissive of theology, uh, many philosophers, uh, and you're noticing that at, the, at that time. And uh, but but then you talk about how uh, you were not, um, and how uh, you, you actually appreciated theology. Uh, you understood that's different, different than philosophy and, and the way that the language works. And, and but but uh, theology is not incompetent, that sort of thing. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, which I also want to focus on, is. Uh, you're, you're introduced and, and begin to uh, experiment, uh, so to speak, with the, the world of analytic philosophy. And um, uh, maybe you can also describe for our listeners who they may not be familiar with what analytic philosophy is. Um, but, but back up for a second here. How, how did those, how did this experience of going to uh, Amsterdam and uh, with your young family, uh, fresh out of out of somewhere like Harvard. How, how did this how did this change you in some ways? Uh, how did this form you as a philosopher? Yeah, so um, that went this way, Matthew. Um, so when I graduated, I graduated from Calvin with a philosophy major. But I, throughout my college career, I'd had in mind the possibility of becoming a theologian. So when I mentioned this to, when I was a senior senior and uh, thinking about my future, I talked to my profs about it, and I said, well, yes, I, you shouldn't maybe close that off. But why don't you apply for fellowships, some fellowships in philosophy, and then you can go into theology if you want to after that. So I did that, got a fellowship to Harvard. I uh, got a degree three years. Then Harvard gave me a traveling fellowship, which basically <laughs> had no obligations whatsoever, um, almost no money, but no obligation. So we decided that, uh, Claire and I decided that what we would do is spend a semester of term in Cambridge to um, continue studying philosophy and then go to Amsterdam. Everybody was telling me that the best theologian, systematic theologian in my reform tradition was a Garrett Berkauer at the Free University. So in the early spring, we went there and I listened to Berkauer's lectures. I had enough Dutch acquired from listening to my grandparents that I could understand the lectures. So I'd been trained at Harvard in analytic philosophy, of traditional philosophy, contemporary traditional philosophy, which places a great prize on clarity of argumentation, um, clarity of concepts, uh, not not high-flown speculation, but as it were, sticking rather close to the ground, sticking rather close to the cases that you're talking about. If you're talking about justice, don't just give high-flown theories about justice, but look at cases of justice. That was the tradition in which I was reared at Harvard. So Berkauer <laughs> was by no means an analytic uh, philosopher of theologian. So I found his lectures interesting, extremely genial and ecumenical. But to, what word do I want? I don't want to say careless, but to, to lacking in 
rigor, hmm. uh, giving arguments that I'd want to say, hold up, slow down, let's go through that a bit more carefully and slowly. So um, after, I don't know, four weeks of listening to Barakauer, I said to myself, if, if he's the best theologian in my tradition, I cannot spend the rest of my life as a theologian. Uh, so that, since then, I haven't wavered. I've been in philosophy, and I think that was the right decision. But I, now a good many of my colleagues in philosophy are very, as you hint there, are very dismissive of present-day theology. I'm not. Um, I think I was a little bit insensitive at the time to some of Barakauer's merits. But when I got to Yale in 89, uh, I would have students reading Karl Barth. Some of these would be students trained as I was trained in analytic philosophy. And they'd throw up their hands. Bart, if, if, to those who've read Barth, Barth is, well, it's a very different style. It's exuberant. It's <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to say to these students, hold on, hold on, slow down. Don't read Bart as if he's an incompetent analytic philosopher. He's using a different rhetorical style. And you have to live with that long enough so that you appreciate it. And most of them manage to do that. So I think my experience with Berkauer helped me. I said, I can't live. This can't be my... Uh, work, but at the same time, I was not just dismissive of it, and that's the attitude I tried to give to my own philosophy students who had who were taking theology courses. Um, don't, just, don't just say they're not doing it the way philosophers are doing it, but get, allow an alternative rhetoric and way of arguing and so forth to um, sink into you. You know, when you Rather wrong answer to your question. No, no, that's helpful because it it uh, it does explain. Um, you know, there there tend to be two extremes. Uh, some theologians go to such an extreme where they uh, they don't engage uh, philosophy, and I, I think that's that can be to their detriment. Uh, on the other hand, like you just mentioned, there's a number of uh, philosophers who you know have have no place for theology, systematic theology, and. Yep. Um, that's that's also um, like you mentioned uh, that that can be problematic. Uh, I I think in many ways here what you're describing, uh, whether it's your time in Amsterdam or, or many of your writings since, um, uh, and I hope our listeners, it, it, some of them may be aspiring philosophers and theologians themselves. Uh, I, I think that uh, you provide a, a great example uh, of of one who is well as your your previous book title mentioned, one who's uh, seeking to, to do philosophy, understand reason, but uh, within the, the context and the, the boundaries of faith itself. Uh, so I think uh, it's commendable in many ways. And I, and uh, this is something I'm, I'm constantly trying to instill in my own students. You know, as you, uh, that, that is uh, such a, a significant um, experience there in Amsterdam as you begin to uh, explore analytic philosophy and, and 
understand how how this could actually be um, helpful to the Christian faith is you then go back to the States. You you have a, a teaching stint in Yale. Uh, we can talk more about that. But then ultimately Calvin uh, College, you return to Calvin College where you have decades and decades and decades of uh, teaching yeah. ahead of you. You know, one thing I want to just uh, pick out here uh, that that I, I I just couldn't help but uh, but but focus on is uh, for for many uh, many many of your your own colleagues or even students uh, or just outsiders they would have thought well why would you why would you leave a, a prestigious uh, school like Yale for a a small Christian college like uh, Calvin and and uh, you you talk about uh, well what what made you uh, uh, go in that direction. Uh, what what was it exactly, and and why was it? Maybe this is the better question. Why was it that that you were not uh, stuck on the prestige of of Yale, but but wanted to go somewhere like Calvin? Yeah. So um, it went like this. So Claire and I are sitting in Amsterdam in the spring of '57, and I get a letter from the chair of the Yale Philosophy Department offering me a position as an instructor. He's not inviting me to apply. He's offering me the position. So I I know what was going on uh, without asking. This was the old boys' network, still at work. Um, Yale chair calls up Harvard chair and says, do you have any recent graduates from Harvard chair? So says, yeah, I'll try this water store fellow. And uh, <laughs> it, it was an unfair system. I didn't think about that at the time. I was just happy to be offered it. So I, so I said, sure. So... Um, Spent two years at Yale, then got the inquiry and the offer from Calvin. And two things, um, well, maybe three things. One was, this was my alma mater, for whom I felt a great deal of affection, asking me to come and teach. Second, it was clear to me that Calvin, far more than Yale, was a place where I could develop as a Christian philosopher instead of just philosopher in the analytic tradition. And as one of the senior profs at Yale um, made clear to me, uh, advancing through the ranks was very difficult at Yale. So it wouldn't be unlikely that no matter how good I was, at some point I'd be released. Um, as he put it, if, if you really want to be at Yale, come in at the top, which is what he did. Well, prestige did not mean as much for me as it did for him, but... Um, I think it was the blend of the tug of my alma mater and my desire to be in a place where I could develop as a Christian philosopher and not just a philosopher. Maybe we can skip ahead to uh, 1979-1980. Uh, to your field, and that is Reformed epistemology. Uh, some of our listeners may not know what that is. Uh, how, how would you contrast, say, the the evidentialism that that maybe is very prevalent in in many Christian or philosophical circles uh, with this Reformed epistemology that that the two of you begin to carve out? 
Yeah, so um, so let me first to set a little bit more of the context. So I said uh, I chose Calvin on the expectation that I could flourish better there as a Christian philosopher. So what happened at Calvin then was that um, Calvin Plantinga was there, Rich Mao was there, Peter DeVos, a lot of really talented young philosophers. And we decided to get together every Tuesday for two hours, have the uh, registrar's office uh, not schedule any courses then. And so every Tuesday for two hours, we would discuss something that one of us had written, a chapter in a book, an article, whatever. We would go through it with fine-tooth comb, begin by saying who's got anything to say about the chapter as a whole, and then page one, page two, and so forth. It was sometimes tough love. Uh, we really had affection for each other, but we were we criticized each other gently, but nonetheless, we criticized uh, what we had written. It was a fantastic learning experience. It was a, as genuine a learning community as I can possibly imagine. So uh, now to your question. So what, have we, what emerged out of that was was the following. John Warwick Montgomery came and gave a lecture, remember it very well yet, on evidences for God's existence. And um, so, we, so we gave the lecture and suggested that it was important to have arguments for God's existence. Then the following Tuesday, we were just chatting and chatting about, before we began the, our discussion, chatting about Montgomery's lecture. And somebody happened to say, why do we need arguments? And um, we discussed that question for the rest of the session, forgot about the paper that we were scheduled to talk about, talk about and couldn't think of a good answer to it. Um, this is partly reflecting, I suppose, the fact that we ourselves, who had been students at Calvin, that our prof didn't give us arguments and evidences and so forth. So it was from that... Uh, a small beginning that there emerged what was what came to be called reform, reformed epistemology, uh, which said that um, called attention to the fact that deep in the modern Western tradition was the idea that religious people do need arguments for their convictions, and uh, we came to the conclusion that well, that's true in some cases. It's not true in general that. Um, Lots of our beliefs we don't have arguments for. I see a, yesterday I saw a wild turkey looking in my study window. I didn't have an argument for my seeing a wild turkey. I just, just had experial, experiential evidence. And so it was the, so reformed epistemology has really opened up an exploration of the grounds of religious belief, place of arguments, what kinds of evidence, experiential evidence, testimonial evidence, and so forth. Um, but in general, the idea has been that it's not true that in general people have to have arguments for their fundamental Christian conviction. That God moves us to, upon seeing the immensity of the stars to believe that there's a creator without having some argument uh, for that. You know, the, That's reformed epistemology. 
you know, uh, my colleague Al Plantinga called it reformed epistemology because he found it in uh, the turn of the turn of the last century Dutch theologian Bavink and Calvin, which is true. I never liked the term um, because you also find the Catholic medieval theologian Aquinas sponsoring the same position. That the odd to call Aquinas a reformed theologian. But I was never able to come up with anything else better. So there it is, reformed epistemology. <laughs> well, it certainly has stuck, and uh, regardless of the label, the, the concept itself has been so influential. I, I think that... Uh, to your credit and Al's credit, uh, it really has given an alternative uh, way of thinking through why we think what we think, why we believe what we think, uh, and and uh, more to the point, uh, how we think about God. Uh, it, it changes the way we understand faith itself. Uh, speaking of faith, uh, I, it wasn't... Um, I believe, but uh, a few years after this, um, so I think that was 1979, 1980, 1981, uh, somewhere around there. Uh, but it was a few years after this, uh, in in uh, June of 1983, that uh, you receive a very difficult phone call, um, one that, that really changed your life and um, uh, your whole family, uh, and that's concerning your, the death of your son, your son Eric. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, you know, m for for many who who uh, have read what you've what you've written, listened to to you lecture, you know, they um, they aspire to you in terms of uh, your your career and your contribution, much like we just mentioned. But uh, you're also you're also a husband. Uh, you're also a father. Uh, not just a philosopher, though. Though perhaps right. those two things aren't unrelated. Um, right. you, you talk about how how proud you were of your son Eric, uh, and then how how devastating it was when yeah. when he uh, very suddenly uh, very suddenly yeah. passed away. Maybe uh, I know this is a really difficult. Uh, this this must be very difficult uh, to discuss. Uh, what maybe you could just uh, speak to uh, how. Uh, you know your your pride in your son Eric, and then how uh, that that his death has shaped you, not just as a philosopher, but in terms of of a father. Yeah, so that was shattering. Um, June of '83, Eric is killed in a mountain climbing accident in Austria. So that was shattering. Uh, my life uh, had tiny disappointments, but nothing much. I mean, Yale offers me a job, Calvin offers me a job, I get promoted, and uh, family, and they're healthy, and we have enough money to live on, and all of that, and now this. So, so it divided my life, I put it like this, it divided my life into before and after. Um, and it became clear to me, mulling it over, that a death of someone you love is not only their death, but it's a death of something inside yourself, that you've got these attachments to them and wishes and uh, sometimes regrets and all of that. And now all of that is ripped 
boss was on the way to um, to Munich to work in Munich for the summer and stay with Eric. And so, so that's now ripped out. So, so the whole family, one's own life changes, and the whole family changes. Um, and so, to so, so what I wanted to do is to be honest about that. So, there's a lot of strands in the Christian tradition which say. Uh, Get over it. Get on with things. Uh, he's better off. Um, talked to someone the other day whose son died of polio when he was in late high school, senior in high school, back in my home village. And she said to me that her parents never talked about it, never said a word about it. Mm. That seems to me dishonoring. Mm. Said they did keep some photographs out of him, but they never again spoke of him. Uh, so we speak of Eric and uh, keep out ceramics that he made and photographs and so forth. But it doesn't meant the reshaping of the family. Yeah. You know, it's a a, a difficult uh, like I, the the word you use there. It really uh, rips everything apart you you described it as uh not just a, a death but just a, a, also a, a part of you um uh, that rips out it, it dies uh it's um and of course you know to our listeners if if uh, I, I imagine many of our listeners have uh may may have experienced loss in some sense um they, they may want to read uh the book you wrote um, that uh, speaks of the lament. Uh, it, it's called Lament and a Son. And uh, in this book, um, you're wrestling over that loss and, and just the sorrow and, and the uh, uh, just the hurt that comes with it. Um, there, you know, there's when I think over your memoir. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, your contribution to to uh, subjects like justice and your experience in Africa. Uh, we could we could talk about uh, you and, and Claire and and uh, your love for art, uh, which uh, is, is something I I too share. Um, we could talk uh, about about so much more. Uh, how you returned to Yale uh, after teaching for decades at Calvin and uh, uh, that experience uh, at, at their Divinity School. Um, but uh, as we as we finish, uh, I want to mention uh, a recent, uh, actually a new public. Publication um, that uh, is is out this year called Religion in the University. Uh, this yep. is a book where <clears throat> you have uh, you interact with a number of of different thinkers uh, from Max Weber to John Locke to, to someone like Charles Taylor and, and, and others, but you're doing so with an eye to the university itself trying to yep. give a, a defense, uh, maybe you could even call it an apologetic, for uh, religion in, the, in a secular university. And of course, uh, given your experience teaching, you have much credibility. Could you, could you speak to this new book, and, and what is it uh, that you're trying to argue and achieve? Yeah. So it's a brand new book out, a couple of weeks, Religion in the University from Yale Press. It's uh, the revised text of some lectures I gave at Yale in 2001. 
So I was happy that Yale Press was willing to publish it since I was a Yale prof at the time and they were Yale lecturers. So what I want to argue is <laughs> the basic position that I absorbed as a student at Calvin, namely that religion, uh, the religious voice has a place along with the other voices. Um, so in the first chapter, I use the great turn of the last century German sociologist Max Weber, who argues, I think with great power, that religion in the modern university has been squeezed out. Then in the second chapter, I narrate some of the extraordinary changes that have taken place over the last 50 years and how we understand uh, academic learning. The two people I especially use are Thomas Kuhn, who talked about physical science, and uh, Hans-Georg Gadamer, who talked about uh, interpretation of literary texts and legal texts and historical and, and history. Then in the third, I trace some of the changes that we were alluding to earlier over the past 40 years um, about religion, the charge that religion is irrational if it doesn't have arguments supporting it. Um, in effect, without using the term reformed epistemology, talk about reformed epistemology. And then I say that in the last chapter, this, these new understandings of academic learning and these new understandings of religion mean that we have to look again at the legitimate place of religious voices and orientations in the practice of scholarship. Uh, that religion and uh, academic learning are both interpretations and interpretations of often the same reality. So that's the course of the book, a defense for the place of religious voices, responsible religious voices, in the contemporary academy. I, I say that when I reflect on Yale, it's a mistake to talk about Yale as a secular university. It's a pluralist university. And chair of the philosophy department, my friend Bob Adams, regularly taught a course on the German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher. There was a course in Jew Jewish hermeneutics in the English department, courses in law and religion in the law school. I would regularly teach a seminar every spring on classic aspects of the classical Western understanding of God, simplicity, eternity, immutability, and so forth. So this is not a secular university. The secular voice is maybe the loudest, but it's a pluralist university. So I argue for the propriety of the religious voice, along with other voices, in pluralist universities like Yale. We've been talking to Nicholas Wartersdorf, Noah Porter, Professor Emeritus at, uh, of Philosophical Theology at Yale University, the author of many, many books, uh, including Religion in the University, as well as his recent memoir of a life and learning called In This World of Wonders. Nick, what a, what a joy it has been and how rich it's been to, uh, to talk to you, not just talk to you, but to hear about your life uh, and uh, both the many triumphs, uh, even the many, some of the tragedies uh, that characterized you. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining and me. And thank you for your questions. They were questions that enabled me to, um, well, speak, speak freely. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on You're the Creed of Podcast. Well. Now you can fill up on theology each day 
by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.